Welcome back to Spotlight 19, a podcast dedicated to New York's Congressional District 19 and tracking the votes and activities of a representative to Congress, John Faso. This is your host, Justin Tracy. So Spotlight 19 is becoming more than just an audio show, and this fall we plan to work with local students to encourage education and civil engagement in our youth. Spotlight 19 is also investigating Representative Fazzo's background and interviewing the candidates who have filed to run against Fazzo as we get ready for the 2018 election. We address how Congress's actions will affect us locally here in New York 19. So we hope you will stay tuned to the show. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and rate and review us on iTunes and Facebook. So this week, we will not be doing our usual vote recap or the first Fazafax segment. Instead, we will be featuring our discussion with Jeff Beals. Uh, Jeff Beals is running for John Fazer's congressional seat. This was recorded on July 30th with Saja conducting the interview. We're going to take you there right now. I'm sitting here today with Jeff Beals. He is our fifth candidate for our 10th episode. And we're really excited that all of the candidates so far have agreed to be on. And I had the pleasure of meeting Jeff at an Indivisible event back in on July 1st. And this is actually the third time we're meeting. So we're excited to have him back at the studio. And welcome to Spotlight 19. Thanks. So tell us about your connection to the district. My story in the district goes back actually before I was born. My grandparents, they were refugees to the United States, and they worked in factories and sweatshops in New York City, and they got themselves this little piece of paradise, which was in Sullivan County, in South Fallsburg, Kayamisha Lake, Liberty, Monticello. These were places that they rented and used to come all the time. And that was where the Hudson Valley became the paradise for my family. And it meant all the more to them because they were all survivors of the Holocaust, all four of them. And then my dad, who grew up with that, and so did my mom, they were always dreaming about being in the Hudson Valley. My dad was actually a waiter in Ellenville, at a place called the Old Greenwood Inn. And he did that for a number of years. And he was always saving up to get his place here. And he ultimately wound up building my family's farm in the Hudson Valley, which is in Putnam County. It's called Willow Ridge Farm. And we raise livestock there. And we've done all sorts of different livestock ventures there over the years, from goats to cattle to Thanksgiving turkeys. And my story to the district is that I wound up being drawn to government service when I graduated. I grew up on that farm and in Westchester throughout my childhood. We had it since I'm a little boy. And then I wound up becoming a officer with the CIA, an intelligence officer, when I graduated from college. And I did that for a number of years, serving in Washington and around the Middle East, briefing ambassadors and senators and congressmen. And then I joined the State Department and I became a diplomat. And I worked in the West Bank and Gaza Strip And after that, I became one of the longest-serving diplomats of the Iraq War. And after the war, came back home here to my family's farm. And that's where I married my wife, Suhair. And we had our two sons, Abraham and Joseph. And I answered a call to start teaching and also working with livestock there and also doing all sorts of projects. And so I've been teaching since. And now I teach history in Woodstock, where I'm the history teacher at Woodstock Day School. When did it first come to your mind to run for Congress? I've been politically active all my life. I've been uh, fighting for what I believe in all my life. I was in the 
U.S. government as a diplomat for many years. So being involved in politics was never far from my mind. But actually being involved in this election came about the way a lot of grassroots activism came about. I was teaching a class on this election. I was teaching a civics class in New York 19. We had the canvassers of Zephyr Teachout into our class. Some of my students became canvassers for Zephyr Teachout. We had John Faso's campaign into my class because I wanted them to see both sides. Although it's no surprise that most of my students wound up choosing Zephyr's side. So I followed all that and I was active with it. And then when the election results came, I reacted the way a lot of people did. I started doing things on the grassroots to make a difference. I threw the first swing left event, I think, in New York 19. It was an event in Woodstock, and I wound up bringing together... I put up the ad through swing left. I forgot to check how many people could come, RSVP. I forgot to set a limit, and it was supposed to be at my place, and it soon became uh, 100 people from seven of the 11 counties all RSVP'd. So once that started taking off and I knew the energy was there, I started feeling it myself. One of the first events I went to was put on by the Women's March, and it was over in Kingston. And I was a little bit apprehensive on the types of people I would see. And I thought that maybe everyone there would be just from Kingston and all the very deeply blue counties in our vast district. And I was so surprised to find people from all over the district at this event because these groups that have kind of sprung up after the election are gaining so much momentum. And now that there's so much organizing you can do via social media, joining all these lists. And it's been really inspiring to see the level of activism here. I did see that one of the things that you're working on is doing a Unite for NY19 is a a kind of an initiative to go around the district and meet people. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, definitely. Well, well, first off, by the way, even before Swing Left, I went to Washington, D.C. with a big group of my students and their parents, and we went to the Women's March. In fact, one of my students that was there and is just graduating is here with us today, Kaya Noodleman. We all went to D.C. We were all part of that. We were then part of Swing Left. It kept on growing. I've been involved with the first voter registration canvas that was set up by New York 19 Votes, which was originally called the Resistance Voter Registration. Then it became New York 19 Votes. This is all still evolving. Who knows where we're going to be by the time we get to the election? It's exciting because I think it's still growing. You mentioned after the Iraq war. I just have one question. What is your position on the presence of the U.S. in in Iraq? It's something that you said after the war, I'm under the impression we have a huge presence still there now. So what are some of your thoughts on that? Good question. And it's evolved. You know, my story with Iraq began um, after about the, the Iraq war was so horribly mismanaged and such a horrible tragedy in the way that it was undertaken that people from the State Department were actually, many of them were not even involved. I was in Jerusalem when the Iraq war was planned and undertaken. I was a diplomat in the West Bank in Gaza with my close friend, Chris Stevens, who is the ambassador who he lost in Benghazi in another American tragedy. About a year uh, into the war, I got a call from Baghdad because I'm a fluent speaker of Arabic, and they wanted to know if I would come there to help get us out of the disaster that America was stuck in and help the soldiers who were there. And I agreed to do it. And I went there, and that's how I became one of the longest-serving diplomats of the war. I arrived in November of 2004. The war was in March, April 2003 that it began. And so I helped set up our first embassy there, and I wound up— Were you in Baghdad? Yeah, I was in. Ba- I was based in Baghdad and then traveled the length and breadth of the country. 
And my role was to try to find a way to get political agreements and ceasefire agreements and outreach to the people we were fighting to get America out of Iraq and stabilize Iraq, which I thought was something we desperately needed to do. Um, And so what I wound up doing was mediating the drafting of Iraq's constitution. And I wound up dragging a lot of very recalcitrant people from all sides, including the American one, together around a table to initiate the first ceasefire talks we wound up having at the highest levels in Iraq. And that brought together our ambassador, generals, and insurgents that I wound up making contacts with across Iraq to try to find a way to stop the fighting and extract us from Iraq. And I was decorated by the U.S. Army for that work and and by the State Department for my work there. And when did you actually get back from Iraq, back to the States? What wound up happening was that I left Iraq for the first time after the after I helped with the formation of Iraq's first elected permanent government in 2006. I left after that. I wound up being called back again by the White House. They asked if I would return. And I came back in 2007 to help again with political negotiations that were going on there. Uh, that accompanied what was called the surge at the time. The concept that the president had and that Congress backed at the time was that more soldiers would create an opening for more diplomatic progress. So they asked if I would come back into government and help with those negotiations. I was actually on my honeymoon with my wife, and I realized that I couldn't say no if my country asked me to do that, and I went back. And then I was asked to come back again in 2008 with the General Anthony Zinni, he went out there. He was one of the great opponents of the Iraq War, and he formed a commission of generals and leading diplomats and leading U.S. government figures to come to Iraq, evaluate where we were at and what was the way forward, and provide that analysis to Ryan Crocker, our ambassador, and General Ray Odierno, who was the leading commanding general there. And so I went back to Iraq again in 2008. Um, you know, that's, that's, I guess, my Iraq story. Starts in 2004, goes through 2008. I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be in this country that really bore the brunt of a misguided objective. And that's my opinion, but I think there's general agreement that it wasn't a war born out of any great threat to the U.S. as it was initially presented. I think that's what history and that's what declassification, especially in the past year of the documents that showed that the U.K. wasn't also was aware that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And I think, in general, the public perception of that war has gone down over the years. Given that you had that experience, how do you think you can apply it to your role as our congressman, if elected? Well, number one thing that I bring to being a congressman and that I that bring to this political struggle is being a working person in the district. Um, you know, this, we're talking about stuff that's almost uh, 10 years ago and it is, uh, an, you know, an unbelievable episode and there's a million things we could talk about with it. But the biggest thing that I take from it and that I have to remind people of is that in the end, you have a lot of desperate situations in this world. Frankly, Congress itself is a mess right now. The United States Congress is a mess and there's one approach to it, which is to say, wipe your hands, uh, clean, wash your hands of it. Don't be involved. The same thing would go for what became of the Iraq war. And the other approach is to say, 
uh, I'm going to try my best to go in there and take a bad situation and make it better for individual people. You know, I said my, my story as a teacher involves that. I'm trying to help students. My story as a working person in the district involves that. Frankly, my Iraq story hasn't ended either. I still have Iraqi refugees that I'm helping, um, some of whom came to live with me here in the United States after the war, and that I helped to get uh, immigrant visas to get to the United States when their lives were in danger there. But when we talk about Congress, honestly, and we talk about this race, it's not about the Iraq war. Um, it is about figuring out how are you going to help working people in New York 19. And they are not being helped right now. They're all being terribly marginalized and not represented by a congressman who has really been bought and paid for by corporate interests and Wall Street money outside the district. And that is reflected in almost everything that he does. So that's the biggest thing that I'm against. And it's the biggest thing that I feel I bring to this. Me and my wife both work here. Um, my children go to school here. We work to make ends meet here and we don't always succeed. Those are things that I think people care about and that I want to speak to as a candidate. You're listening to Spotlight 19. And we'll be back in a moment with more of our conversation with Jeff Beals. Before we get back to our show, we hope our listeners will take some time this summer and fall to visit Seedsong Farm in Kingston and see all the innovative ways that Creek and Lisa are contributing to the community in an inclusive way by donating their leftover crops to area food banks and pantries. Uh, you can visit them at Rosendale Farmers Market on Sundays and at seedsongfarm.org. And we return now to the conclusion of our conversation with Jeff Beals here on Spotlight 19. You mentioned that your children go to school in the district, and I think that that's kind of a topic that has been completely fallen by the wayside. These conversations about education and our broken and failing education system that's really falling behind in the world. And I was wondering, given the fact that you're a teacher at a private school in the district, what are some of your thoughts on Betsy DeVos's Department of Education, which really some of her policies are going to have a drastic effect on our public schools? I think you come from a really unique perspective on this issue in particular definitely i mean not only that but i'm also the son of a of a teacher i'm the product of public schools my mom was a teacher all her life my brother is a new york city public school teacher Uh, my uncle is a retired teacher education is kind of everything to my family and uh, public education is a huge huge part of what i want to run to support and protect i think it's the infrastructure of our whole democracy i think that when you have students getting a good education, you are preparing for your future. And when you dismiss that or you don't fund it or you don't support it, you are mortgaging your own country's future. And that's tragic, short-sighted, and cruel. And that is a good description for all the things I have to say about Betsy DeVos and her tenure as our education secretary. There's something every week. This week, her initiative has been to shed more light on Title IX, which is the title of the Civil Rights Act that governs. Well, when it originally came into being, it was so men and women get equal access to college sports. 
But another thing that comes out of Title IX is uh, sexual assault on campus, which by the end of the Obama administration had for the first time been brought up on a national level. And we were having discussions about, you know, how do we prevent sexual assault on campus and make sure that it isn't a problem where what 20 percent of all women in a survey can say, oh, this has happened to me and uh, it's never talked about. And one of the things that Betsy DeVos actually did this week is invite a men's rights group to the table to have this conversation. It's one of the first times that a men's rights advocacy group has been recognized on this level. And it's kind of a way to move away from this process of having colleges actually risk losing their federal funding if they don't adequately address the sexual assault crisis on campus. That's one of the issues that even this week came up, and every week it's something different from this Department of Education, just pushing back on a lot of the achievements that were made over the past eight years. Uh, What do you think about this kind of move backward in general, and specifically about Betsy DeVos's position on sexual assault on campus? We know that sexual assault is underreported on on college campuses. We know that. And that's why the Obama administration took the steps that it did to try to make it easier for people to come forward and for us to tackle that crime. Why is she doing this? I think that it's a bigger question. I think it fits a larger pattern that you have to see and not just talk about education. It's always about powerful people finding a way to band in together and work against weak people. That's really what I see this as part and parcel of. It's not just about education. It's that the weak people in our society are being trampled on, and they are not served by the people in power, because the people in power come from extremely well-financed, powerful backgrounds, powerful networks of donors, powerful institutions in our country on Wall Street and in corporate America, and they wind up banding together to further take away the rights of working people and people that are less well-off and people that don't usually have a voice in affairs. And this is, you know, you could talk about it in terms of education, but we know Betsy DeVos's business background. And do you know her her brother, I think, is... uh, Eric Prince, the guy who headed up Blackwater, which is one of the military contracting firms. You have to look into the larger networks here. What is going on? Where is this influence coming from? A lot of it is connected, and a lot of it has to do with people that don't have money getting less and less money and less and less say in their lives. And that's what I'm seeing around the district. I mean, we're not, we're talking in broad stroke terms, and you can cut me off, but what I'm seeing, I'm going around every day. You know, you're asking me, like, where's your activism come from or what's your campaign been like or how are you running it? I'm running it by going door to door and meeting people. I was just out this last weekend on the voter registration drive. I was out at a mobile home park in New Lebanon in Columbia County. And I met a couple guys sitting next to their mobile home. And one of them asked me, he said, why should somebody have to have more than one job in order to make ends meet? His dad works for Stop and Shop. He was heading off to go work another shift as a waiter. That was one of two jobs that he had. And I thought it was a totally legitimate question. Why, when did this become the norm? When did it become normal for people to not be able to work a job and actually have that work result in financial security? That's the terrible thing that's happened in our economy. It's happened over the last 40 years. And people aren't speaking to it. 
And instead, we wind up, unfortunately, getting almost distracted by the, the crisis du jour from this administration. They almost, there's so many things to respond to, but there's one underlying reality that's behind it all, which is the marginalization of working people in America. And that's what feeds into Betsy DeVos even being the education secretary, which she shouldn't be. And what she's doing with Title IX, which is figuring out another way to gang up on the people who are weak and disenfranchised. Well said. It's pretty depressing. Uh, no, it's not depressing. It's, we're going to change it. No, we're going to yeah. change it. We're going to change it. Okay. We have to identify the problem, and then we change it. Sure. So, and, and I think we're on our way to doing and, that. And I think the catch-22 that you fall into because of this consolidation of power is that in order to fight back, the forces of corporate power and greed, unfortunately, has permeated our political system to the point where if you are not able to raise money, it's very difficult to get your message out there all of a sudden. And it shouldn't be that way. But it seems like over the past, especially the past few elections, these campaigns are raising more and more money. And we've seen that money does not win elections. But don't and, don't wait, see, and, and don't let me cut you off. No, but no, don't, but okay. don't don't fall for that, because you yourself are demonstrating that that doesn't have to be true anymore. Who is funding Spotlight 19? We're doing this in your living room. <laughs> true. And there's no corporate money behind this. And we're just doing it. You're going to put it up online. It's not going to cost it's going to cost you your expertise, which you bring to it. And, Thank you. <laughs> and which is great. And that changes everything. I think we're we are right now on the cusp of being able to change everything. But we have to break out of the mindset that tells us that everything has a price tag and everything needs to be bought and can be bought, including this election. I don't think it can be bought. I think that we just saw John Ossoff raise over $20 million in Georgia and still lose. So it showed you that there wasn't a price tag. You could raise everything you wanted for the wrong candidate and you wouldn't win. But beyond that, I think we know that there is enough activism and excitement in New York 19 right now that if we keep on growing our grassroots network, talking to each other, human to human, but we build it and we keep doing it and doing it and doing it, by the time the election comes around, we're going to be so strong and our network is going to be so big that it'll be impervious to the big money that wants to try to take it from us. I really believe that. I think that's a good optimistic attitude that I should have. I think Justin said to me earlier, I need to be more upbeat because I, I think every weekend we try to, to take a break from the news cycle and there is usually a little bit less, you know, you said crisis du jour and that's exactly what it is. And to the point where now I have friends who text me and say, well, what is this supposed to be a distraction from? And, you know, this week's series of distractions with the new communications director and, you know, the lewd things that are being said, uh, the crisis du jour in the president's Twitter was to distract us away from healthcare. And I don't know if I can still say it was a decisive victory because I feel like they're going to come back next week and the week after and just try and dismantle the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, you mentioned that maybe I should speak to my background. I did campaign for Barack Obama and he campaigned on his health care plan. And in law school, I had to read the original draft of the Affordable Care Act, which you know, Republicans love to disparage it because it was long. It was 1,100 pages or whatever many pages it was. But the reason it was so long is that it was comprehensive. It addressed every type of healthcare care uh, crisis you could have. And the fact that 
this party is trying to dismantle this piece of legislation that really took 25 years to write. It was a collaboration between so many different individuals, parties, groups that represent the insurance and what have you. But this week we saw that Republicans are ready to get rid of that without any replacement. And it was a win. On I, I stayed up on Thursday night to see the vote. Really, it was down to John McCain. This senator can change the path of how I live my life for the rest of my life. Because at this point, we're tied to our jobs so we can have health care. That's something that Justin and I go through. I think a lot of families in this area go through the fact that, well, I can't switch my job and I can't have a period of uncertainty in my life because I need to make sure that we're covered. You know, before Obamacare was put into effect, I had just graduated from college. We didn't have that expansion yet where you could go on your parents. And, you know, I was like, I need to get a job or I need to be in school so I can have health insurance. So what what's your position on health care? I support Medicaid for all. Uh, well, Medicare for all is the better way to, to put it because that's the program where we can really see that administrative costs are so much lower when you run the program that way. And, you know, when you talk about the Affordable Care Act and what went into writing it, what you wind up seeing is the nature of greed. Greed is never satisfied. There were a lot of accommodations made in the drafting of that legislation with the health industry. There were a lot of accommodations made so that people could preserve their profit margins on people's illnesses. They're still running it to some extent as a for-profit business when people get sick. And even with those concessions, they're still not satisfied. They still want to strip even that. I mean, the whole evolution of this skinny repeal was amazing to watch because it was first we're going to strip over 30 million people of their health care. Then they like redraft it. No, no. Okay. Okay. We've redrafted it. Now we'll, we'll strip 20 some odd million people. Okay. That didn't work. Well, now we'll try 10 million people. In other words, the whole legislation is how many people can we get away with hurting? How many people can we get away with disenfranchising? And it applies to everybody, not just the people who are covered by the Affordable Care Act. Even if you aren't, like you mentioned, you still then live under the threat that if you lose your job, you can lose your health insurance and then be, you're, you wind up being job locked, as people put it, into your job because you're so, you're under that cloud of uncertainty if you were to lose it. And then even if you do lose your job, you know then that one bad bill, even if you've saved up, can wipe you out. So all of that is so wrong. But it all comes from the infection of money into our politics that you were talking about before. I hope we could talk about even our own New York 19 election when it comes to sure. money and politics. You wanna, we can, we can dive we right in. I think um, we should. Before, before we actually started uh, the interview we've been talking about, um, it's been great to have all the candidates on, but um, you know, just having everyone come on and do their stump speech isn't going to fly for much longer. I think at this point, all of the can eight candidates have announced. Let's start there. Yeah, let's um, talk about it. Do you think it's too many? I I go back and forth because, you know, there will be a, a div divvying up of resources that are available. I think for now, if you told me that there was going to be 30 next week, that'd be good too, because <laughs> uh, everybody activates their own networks and brings more and more people into the the political process. So that's good. I mean, this sure. is this comes from a surfeit of enthusiasm, which is good. Um, but then, yeah, at a certain point, you got to winnow it down and you got to ask some basic questions that a lot of people aren't necessarily asking. I think the first question that I would ask myself is, 
is what's going on here? Is this indivisible movement, this grassroots awakening, does it mean anything? Are we doing anything new here? Or was this just about swinging the district to a Democrat? I think it has to be about more than that. I don't think that Donald Trump is the only thing that has gone wrong in America. I think he's the symptom of things that have gone wrong in America for the last 40 years, during which almost all of the country's GDP growth has gone to the top 1% of the population and everybody else has seen themselves with stagnant wages fighting over a shrinking piece of the pie. That is the thing that has gone wrong. And it's gone wrong up and down our district. If you just drive down Ulster Avenue, every other store you're seeing is a place that is dodging taxes and treating their employees shabbily. That is the reality of what is going on in a lot of the retail industry. And it's going on because our tax code has not been written correctly. And it's been manipulated by lobbyists and big businesses. Why is that happening? Now we come back to New York 19. Suddenly, all of our grassroots activism was going on here. We were all very excited. All of us voted against John Faso, which I think is the first question you'd probably want to ask of a candidate. Did you vote against John Faso when he ran for election? I don't know if you know that of this entire field of candidates, um, almost all of them were not voters in New York 19. These are imported candidates to some extent to come and run to help us. Um, which is good. Again, come help, come help. But I do think it's important that you be rooted in the district and have voted against John Faso, number one. I think that's an important thing. The other thing I think is pretty important is you need government, um, you need some public service experience when you want to run for public service. You have to prove that you have acted on your ideals before and acted for others and acted patriotically and aren't going to sell people out when you're presented with the temptations that political office gives to you. Uh, of all the candidates running, I'm the only person who's running who has a record of, of uh, government service and public service in, in the U.S. government, which I think is pretty important. You know, this, this I may is, have to correct you there because uh, Pat Ryan. Pat Ryan is, is a military is a guy. Military oh no, no, man. Pat Ryan's a good guy, and I'm, I'm friends with him. He's yeah. a, he's a he has a record of and military service. Sure. Yeah, I'm talking about you know serving with senators and congressmen. Sure, previously, yeah. absolutely. No, Pat Ryan <laughs> served in the in the army. How important is that, though? How important is what? Right. I mean, I think the I, I think there are two. Well, and look at the results. Exactly. <laughs> Trump is I, not. And this is what but, happens when but we John, elect. But like, he's totally corrupt. But let's let's look. Quite right. But let's look at John Faso career in state government. But his only career has been government. And he also was a lobbyist for some time. And he worked in private practice. But he first worked in a congressional office in, I think, uh, I'm trying to think about my fast Faso facts, um, but I think it's 1970. So he was first exposed to government in 1970. And I think this oh, I'm not, election... I'm not, I'm, I would never make the argument for career politicians. And Lord knows <laughs> I am far from that. I'm a, I'm a school teacher here. And I left government to work on my family's farm, raise my kids and teach. Um, and I have never... Uh, you know that's not my background by a long shot. Sure, no, but, and I'm not. I'm not. But, uh, but I think what you should note about what you should note about John Faso that we should face as Democrats is that he is a credentialed um, candidate who comes forward with a lifetime of government 
experience. Well, let's talk and about if he actually I think it's did bad. anything. Oh, I don't think it's anything <laughs> good. No, no, no. There's nothing good to be said about it. It's bad. It's it's a lifetime of not serving people well here in New York. You know, we do this new segment, this Fast Fazo Facts. I never never thought I'd know so many facts about one person and each period in their life. And it's getting kind of creepy. And I'm nervous about meeting him now because sometimes I feel like I know more about him than, you know, my own parents maybe the record um, is the record is the, really damning um, and, and his voting record he does not have one signature piece of legislation in this such a long career that i can find that it's like wow john Fazzo helped new york state by uh joining in this bill and john let, let's what i'm trying to say yeah. and i agree with you is john Faso is a guy who has been a um a paid off member of our state assembly and is now a congressman who came into office funded by the Mercer family, a hedge fund family, and he serves their interests. And he's been also a lobbyist, and his lobbying firm was fined over $500,000 for misuse or misrepresentation involving a case with state pension funds. So how do you face somebody like that? What I'm trying to say to you is you need to face bad government with good government. You have to face corruption with integrity. Now, part of what's going on in this election right now is we have a candidate who works for the largest lobbying law firm in the United States. This is white collar criminal defense work. okay? and we're facing a guy who is a corrupt lobbyist. I don't think you face a lobbyist with a lobbyist. We have another candidate who is uh, worked for almost a decade for Citibank and was involved in shutting down a factory in Buffalo and is a creature of corporate America. Now, these are people that, for me and my money, hey, I'll take anybody over John Faso at this point. But no, I don't think that's the right alternative. I don't think that's the right face for the Democratic Party right now. I think it's we're in a struggle for the soul of our party, and there's something more dramatic going on here than just a primary with a lot of candidates. What's really going on here is a struggle for us to figure out who represents us and what do we stand for? And I think what we have to stand for is being a party of working people and a party of patriots who give to their communities. And that's why I'm running, even though it's against all odds to stand up from my financial background and say, hey, I'm a teacher here. Uh, I live here. I taught a civics class against John Faso and this type of use of our government. And now I'm going to stand up and, and run for office because I do have a background of patriotism and I do have a background of working in the district in a two-income family. And I think that ought to matter for people. And I can speak to people with rural concerns because my family's a member of the Farming Bureau. And, you know, I've myself worked raising turkeys. I've worked with goats. I've done this. I know what it is to live a rural life in upstate New York. So those are the reasons that I'm coming forward to run. And it is part of what's dramatic and exciting about this race. I think everybody's, you know, a better alternative to FASO. Don't get me wrong. But I do think that part of winnowing it down means us asking, what are we about? What is this movement about? Because it can't all be about we don't like Trump. There has to be more to it because Trump was only the consequence of a lot of other things that went wrong and things that are still going wrong and things that are wrong with both parties. Sure. And, uh, you know, getting into the fact that we have eight candidates, another of 
the issues about these imports, as you call them, is the attack ad that's going to come right at them. And I, I, I do want to ask you why you think Zephyr Teachout lost by as much as she did, because not only did she lose, but she lost badly. She lost by almost 10 points. And she was she was an import to the district. She did have a place here. But I don't think that when you really look at the campaign, there were some issues of not going out as much to all of the counties. It's a vast, vast district. And you summed it up nicely that there are these professionals with a long background, but then there's a lot of rural areas in this district. So what do you think about this trend of importing candidates? Um, I think that's what happened in the last election. What do you think about the last election between Faso And we knew all these things about John Faso that we were just talking about. There's so many lessons to learn, but the biggest thing that you could see going on in the Democratic Party on the national level is people talk about the 50-state strategy. Um, and then other people talk about the, they, they talk about, can we just, should we just run where we can win or should we run the 50 state strategy? And, you know, there was this struggle where I guess you could say the Bernie Sanders movement was the 50 state strategy, or that was something that they used as a touchstone. You know, my own background is, you know, I was somebody who was energized by the message that Bernie Sanders put out in the primary. I also believed that, as I'm saying now, we have to come together. And I wound up being a foreign policy advisor on Hillary Clinton's uh, presidential campaign team. And I helped them with Middle East policy. So I thought we all had to come together and I did it in my own life. And Lord knows I wanted her to win over Trump. But what went wrong last time is a big question because things went wrong nationally that affected our own local race. But the biggest thing is the need for us to speak to working people everywhere in the district. I call my campaign the 11 county strategy, going to every single county, talking to people from every walk of life and having a candidate that can do that, that can really do that and not be faking it. Okay. And that's what I'm trying to do. And part of my whole concept of, you know, Unite NY19, that's what I call my campaign, Unite New York 19. I call it that because I think there's an undiscovered solidarity among all these working people in the district. I think more and more when you get past the labels and you talk to people person to person, you discover that most people are in the same boat and they're trying to make ends meet in that way. You know, the story that I can tell you, these are all my own personal life stories, but you know, there was a strike recently on Ulster Avenue by the Communications Workers of America at the outside the AT&T store. Um, And I joined in with that strike. I was the only candidate that went and did that. And I thought I had to do that. These were guys that I met, one of whom lives in New Paltz, just bought a house and was really worried about his future. Why was he worried about it? Because his salary, as he works year after year, he was in several years of working at the AT&T store there. It keeps going down. His salary is going down. The commissions are getting cut. Meanwhile, the CEO is earning over $1,000 an hour. I think that's wrong. I think that's unfair. And I think these young men are being victimized. And I think we have to stand against that. And I think when we make it clear who we stand for, I think people are going to flock to us. I think people are going to vote and vote in big numbers. And we're going to turn around the mistakes of the past and really win. This concludes our conversation with Jeff Beals, at least for this episode. And we'd like to thank Jeff for coming into the studio and spending time with us. Next week, we will be interviewing congressional candidate Sue Sullivan. 
We will also cover John Fazzo's recent voting record and reintroduce the five fast Fazzo facts section, delving a little deeper into John Fazzo. Thanks for listening to Spotlight 19. And in the meantime, keep the faith. Let go, and you're free.